Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Bananas, boobies, Broadway, bravery, and babies. The end. Let's talk about Josephine Baker. But first, let's place her into history. In 1906, the first radio set is advertised, and it can receive signals up to a mile away. The first federal penitentiary building is completed in Leavenworth, Kansas. Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, is married in the White House. The first animated cartoon is copyrighted. Einstein introduces his theory of relativity. Susan B. Anthony, Marshall Field, and Paul Cezanne died. Satchel Paige, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, and Samuel Beckett were born. And on June 3rd, 1906, Frida Josephine McDonald was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, this is Susan. We just wanted to give a little disclaimer. On this episode, Josephine Baker herself wrote five autobiographies, and each of them was a little bit different. Once she died, there were several other biographies written about her life, also a little bit different. So we pulled the information that seems to be fairly consistent within the stories. Um, and the boys are upstairs. So if you hear a little pitter-patter of little people jumping off of dressers. It's two seven-year-olds playing quietly. <laughs> now let's talk about Josephine Baker. Josephine's mother was Carrie McDonald. The father of record is a man named Eddie Carson. He was black with some Spanish mixed in, um, but Josephine was clearly of mixed race. Carrie McDonald was of black and Indian descent. She was tall, dark, very, very striking. She had come to St. Louis to find work at the St. Louis World's Fair. We love the St. Louis World's Fair. She was most famous, in fact, for her cakewalk, which is this strutting, exaggerated dance she could do with a glass of water on her head. Not just the dancers in Fiddler on the Roof. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Incidentally, in the movie Meet Me in St. Louis, mm -hmm. the little sister, who I think her name is Tootie, mm -hmm. does a cakewalk without a glass of water. Sorry. So here's Carrie winning amateur dance contests and working as a waitress and enjoying St. Louis's exploding music scene. And here's Eddie, father of note, as Susan said. That's right. <laughs> That's a way to gloss over. It is. Father of note. Just leave it at that. Uh, he was a slick talker. He was charming and sparkly and popular. And he got his money playing drums in rooms, shall we say, where the whiskey cost five cents and the light bulbs were red. <laughs> Eddie wanted to be a professional singer and dancer. Not like this kind of thing that he was doing. This was to pay the bills. He had a dream of being big. And um, so he traded some drum lessons for some dance lessons at a school with the awesome name of Julius Caesar Lucky's Dance Academy. And soon he was a teacher at the academy and started going to some amateur theatricals and trying out for parts. And that's where he met Carrie. Right. Carrie and Eddie were both cast in an amateur theatrical show called A Trip to Africa. Mm. And it was love at first sight. And so they formed a song and dance act, and Eddie made up all the routines, and they kind of set off on a year of vaudeville, of bars, wherever they could get work. You know, wherever. And about a year after their first meeting, along came little Josephine. Uh, she was illegitimate, but you know... Sometimes when we talk about illegitimate people, it's a real stain. Like mm -hmm. we're like, oh no, mm -hmm. she must be hidden away. But in that time and in that place mm -hmm. and with those people, it was more like it is what it is. Yeah, it, I thought it was very interesting that Josephine was born in a hospital, which would not have been really common for that particular economic class interesting. in that area. Yeah, which was which added, of course, to the mystique. Of who is her father? Was he a wealthy white man who paid for the hospital bills instead of Eddie the drummer? Ooh, I didn't even thought about that. Yeah, so. Well, Eddie, regardless, was grumpy about this birth. I mean, here his lady was home playing peekaboo with this fat baby they called Humpty Dumpty, which soon became Tumpy. Tumpy. And uh, what the heck was going to happen to this act? Like, what about his dream? He went back to drumming kind of resentfully, back at the old hangouts, used his old contacts. And then when little Tumpy was about a year and a half old, along came Richard, the little brother. And I'm sorry to say, Eddie just bailed on yeah. the whole thing. So poor Carrie was left to scrabble around to support her children, mostly cleaning houses. 
in washing clothes. Her dream was certainly <laughs> over. Um, Eddie was the one who knew how to get gigs and do choreography, and she was the Andrew Ridgely to his George Michael. <laughs> and when George Michael left, we, oh, what we, are you going to do? Right. The main force of the act is gone. So, she understandably became pretty grim. She took it out on Josephine, who was an easy target, I think. Josephine would later recall that her mother told her that she hated her and wished she were dead when she was four years old. Now, that could be for dramatic effect. It could be. She, The women that she was growing up with were former slaves, the grandmas. So, she had heard the slave stories, and so maybe she kind of melted those in with her own life a lot. So when Josephine was five, Carrie made another questionable decision and married an often out-of-work laborer named Arthur Martin and had two more daughters. Um, the family lived in absolute grinding poverty. No heat, no electricity, one bed for everyone, which was full of bed bugs, in fact. Uh, very little food. Rats were so plentiful that Brother Richard used to be able to sit up in bed and hit them with a slingshot. Which is kind of gross. They would also move from home to home, often in the middle of the night, to escape the landlords who would be coming by to collect the rent. Mm -hmm. And they would go from one increasingly bad house to another, or apartment. At one point, living in a refurbished boxcar. Like a, the, there's a whole neighborhood of them, of train cars. Yeah, they used to sleep all in one bed, kind of head to foot. And <laughs> Josephine remembers... This is how bad stepfather's feet were stinking. Because 50 years later, she remembered how it used to make her vomit over the side of the bed. <laughs> Poor old guy. That's the reputation we're left with. It's like, I know. Old well, stink foot. There's probably no running water in a train car. Oof. So, um, Josephine was sent out to the produce market to basically um, trick an apple or a carrot or... Um, something with her little cute girl ways or aura, if that failed, to go under the stalls and steal Just stuff. steal it off flat out. Um, she and her siblings would go over to the nearby Union Station, there always is one, to collect and sell pieces of coal that fell off the coal cars. And Josephine's like... What are we doing? What are we doing? I'm just going to climb up on the coal car and throw a bunch of crap down to you, and you just take that. What are we What are we looking for this for? It's right, it's right there. there. <laughs> and so here she is, you know, six, seven years old, and she would go up. I mean, this is a very big risk, I think. Even if you were a little kid, you could get in bad trouble. Well, it. sure, and then the train started moving. Yeah. So she'd get up and throw a whole bunch of stuff, and then they would all um, grab whatever they could get and run away and sell and the coal. And she'd jump off a moving train. Yeah. So, man... You do what you have to do, I guess. But yeah. the family was utterly, like, literally scavenging to survive. If a piece of newspaper was blowing down the street, you would run and get it because it could be insulation. It could be fuel for your fire. Mm -hmm. You could put it in your shoe. You mm -hmm. could use it as a blanket. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... That's the level of yeah. poverty they were living under. She didn't even have a pair of shoes most of the time. Someone had given them some high heel shoe cast-offs, mm -hmm. and so her stepfather cut off the heels... And she wore them. Now, you know how high heel shoes are arranged. You can't walk flat on them. No. And so she ended up kind of walking like a duck. And people would make fun of her for that. Well, and I later in life, walking funny would pay off for her. You see, it all <laughs> works out. You use what you're given. That's right. And, and you know what? Given that kind of pain, physically painful childhood, the future that she had, the pain didn't, probably didn't bother her as much as it would say... Prissy me. Or... Um, she spent a whole year wearing the same gray sailor dress. And at school, where she went, um, she was mocked for her, you know, clown shoes and for being dirty. And she stank. It must be said. But she's not going to school with, you know, extremely wealthy people. These are her neighbors. And she was the stinky of the group. Oh, I, sad. I know. I feel sad. Her one haven was Grandma's house. Grandma liked to tell her stories of... Life in Slavery, and then Bible Stories of Courage. The story Cinderella really, really got her. Like, this person who was dirty became, mm -hmm. you know, amazing hero, etc. She was just constantly, constantly hungry for affection and for food, and she got both at Grandma's house. Right. She was hungry for attention, too, surprisingly, but one of the neighborhood boys started putting on little shows in his basement. You know, like every little family. Mm -hmm. Puts on shows. Yeah. But he charged for this show. And it was called McDuffie's Pen and Penny Poppy Show. And, oh, my God, she would do whatever. Chorus line, I'm there. She practiced coming down those basement stairs, like, <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> foreshadowing. She would practice making this big entrance down the stairs to come do her part. Her brother, Richard, later said, sarcastically, she never did change her act. Yeah, it was always the same every night. And yeah. she would insist that they come and watch it. 
You have to watch it. You have to watch but it. But she never changed her act in her life. No. Because she would come down the <laughs> no. stairs making an entrance. That's what made me laugh. Well, and that continued through her whole life. Yeah, you yeah. have to come and watch it. <laughs> you have to. I'm fabulous. So, a lot of dance crazes were headed. I mean, St. Louis was a hub for a lot of music and dance uh-huh. and movements at the time. Uh-huh. And a lot of dances were based on animals. There was the kangaroo dip and the turkey trot and the grizzly bear, which you've all seen if you've seen Downton Abbey. Uh-huh. Season one, episode two, Daisy and Thomas are downstairs and they do the grizzly bear in the servants' hall. Your ability to recall I yes. constantly amazes me. <laughs> yeah, so you, you can see the, the grizzly bear for yourself. Which were banned everywhere. Those kind of dances are like, that's too saucy. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. Right. I mean, you touched and you like, you know, slumped around. That's, that's not dancing. That's sex. You know, yeah. whatever. So they banned those. So, um, the Ministry of Crazy Walks dances that she did, like the Break the Leg or Saucy ones called the Snake Hips. Does that sound familiar? Snake Hips. Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Fitzgerald. Or the Mess Around. So, seven-year-olds doing inappropriate dance moves are not restricted to toddlers and tiaras. That's right. It's a time-honored tradition. Wow. So, Mama decided that Josephine, age eight, eight, was old enough to be sent out to work. So, she sent her to live as a laundress with another couple. Um, she would clean, chop wood, carry coal. Uh, Josephine later would claim that she was forced to sleep down in the basement with the dog on a bed made with fleas on it. And she was up at the crack of dawn getting her work done. And the, the mistress of the house was extremely brutal and at one point um, forced Josephine to kill a chicken that she had befriended. And ultimately getting so mad at Josephine that she plunged Josephine's hand into a pot of boiling water, which caused Josephine to land out in the hospital and her mother to come and bring her home. As soon as she was better, though, off again she was to Mr. and Mrs. Mason's house to work, where at least they were nice. I mean, they bought her shoes, they bought her outfit. Mm-hmm. Mr. Mason was overly nice, mm. and that ended that particular arrangement, which was kind of too bad, because they did sort of treat her like a daughter up to the point where he treated her like a uh, girlfriend. Right. So then it was incumbent on her to get her own patootin gear and get hold of some cash so she wouldn't get sent out again. So her stepfather was worse than useless in this department. In fact, he had taken to his bed in depression, which is lovely in a Jane Austen heroine who okay. happens to be a noblewoman and lays there with her bottle of laudanum, mm-hmm. but is not so good when it's the man of the house that has children to feed. So she went to the rich white folks section of town. And she went door to door and odd jobbed it. I mean, for mm-hmm. a couple of years, she'll do whatever. I'll babysit. I'll help your cook. I'll make biscuits. I'll, you know, whatever it was. Rake the lawn. Burn the trash. Blah, blah, blah. She did it all. And on good days, she might have made 50 cents after working her booty off. Which was more than Arthur was bringing home. Now, because she was living this, uh, you know, bring home some cash lifestyle. Her education was severely halted. She was dropping out of school. The days when she wasn't out scrounging for jobs, she was at the Booker T. Washington Theater. That's where she'd go go to play hooky from school and hide out and watch the acts. Then when she was 10, two events happened which kind of altered her life forever. Let's do the happy one first. Okay. Coming down the street became a traveling medicine man. These men were no good at actual chemistry. Most patent medicines, if you were lucky, were just simply ineffective. It didn't hurt you if you were lucky. Um, what this guy did have, instead of chemical knowledge, was marketing savvy. Imagine Colonel Sanders, seersucker suit, string tie, driving this crazy, brightly colored wagon down the street, pulling this portable stage that he would just he'd stop at a main intersection and then calmly get out and fold it open. What the heck was this? What the heck? He'd gather a crowd. He'd light some gas jets. He'd arrange for some local acts ahead of time to kind of, you know, like street acts. Like you'd go get buskers. Mm-hmm. Hey, come be on the show. Come be on the show. We're, we're going to have a free show for the people. Right. Oh, yes, we are. And Josephine was just like, everybody's mouth was just wide open standing there. This would never work today, maybe. So one after the other, bands, dancing, comedy. And then the man said... Okay, now let's have us a dance competition. Josephine literally didn't even wait for the thing to stop. She leaped up on stage 
the second that band started to play the, the intro music, mm-hmm. they weren't even, like, calling for contestants or anything. Uh-huh. She's up there. And she did all these crazy dance steps just right in a row. Like, the turkey trot, do-do-do, into the mess around, into the this, into the that. And she's just, like, improv, improv. And she's so little and skinny and ragamuffin-y. And the crowd just ate it up. Her face had a lot of expression to it as well. So she would be rolling her eyes. This is something that she carried with her for a very long time, mm-hmm. these particular gimmicks. So they, they were just whooping, right. hollering. Yep. And then when she stopped and the crowd just kept on cheering, the guy just chuckled and handed her a dollar. A dollar. A dollar. So can you imagine for one dance number, she got more than she got in two days of hard, hard slogging. And that idea took a while to take root, but it I think it made it in there that day. The bad thing that happened when she was 10 is that at this time in St. Louis, there was lots of tension between the very poor blacks of East St. Louis and the very poor whites of St. Louis. They were competing for jobs. There was all kinds of accusations that the Republicans were bringing importing blacks for votes and there was just lies and slander thrown back and forth. Um, the labor boards got involved, and eventually there was a heated uh, rumor that was thrown out that some a black man had raped a white woman, and that was enough to spark this incident. The white people went and started fires in the black people's houses, and the black people retaliated. A couple of police officers were shot, and that just fueled it even more. Houses were burned. People were running. One of the myths that Josephine said later in life is that she was in the middle of it. She has this story where she was pulled from her bed in the middle of the night to run from her life, which wasn't the case because she was across the river. She could see the fall off, the refugees. She could see the flames. She could see it. It affected her life, but she wasn't in the heat of it. But it it did impact her. Yeah. Now, um, of course, like any street-smart young girl, she presented herself at the Red Cross tent as a refugee and took advantage of all the food and clothing on offer. And that was her first encounter with the Red Cross, an organization in which she would have a lifelong interest. Mm -hmm. But her first encounter with them was a fraudulent uh, food recipient. Well, she probably felt that she needed it just as much. (laughs) But the thing, the bad takeaway from all this is that Josephine and honestly most of her community never really felt safe again. No. How could you? Because that minor incident had set off this chain of horror. Mm -hmm. So Josephine entered her teens and whoo, was it a tough situation. She opposed her mother at every turn. Honestly, she had to be a major breadwinner. I guess she felt like she was entitled to some independence. Perks. Yeah. Um... So, she was the co-parent, in fact, of her younger brothers and sisters. Once when she was scrubbing a white lady's floor and the lady had mentioned something about Santa, Josephine, in a rare moment of backtalk to her employer, sat up on her heels and said, There is no Santa. I'm Santa. (laughs) And she's 13 years old. So, the responsibilities kind of got to her, and then her mother would start laying into her for being late. I'm talking laying into her with the belt. Laying mm-hmm. into her. Uh, she took off after one of these incidents and kind of was wandering the streets crying until she encountered a neighborhood man <laughs> who was referred to as Mr. Dad. Now, the story that Josephine says is that her mother forced her to go live with Mr. Dad. Probably the truth is that she did it very willingly because a girl in that situation is going to look for the first out that she can get. And you know what I read about this man? He ran a local ice cream parlor. He was well thought of in the community. Mm -hmm. He was known as a nice man. He was single. He was 50 years old. And I don't think, I don't know him at all, I don't think he had any malicious intent. I really, really don't. I don't think anything happened with Mr. Dad. I really don't. I'm not even going to speculate, so. But I'm just thinking, you know, he's like, well, come, I'll give you a place to live if you work for me in the ice cream store. Right. Which she worked for her him right. in the ice cream store. That seems fair enough. Like, I'll provide you an out. I don't think it in- required other things. But the neighborhood ladies were scandalized. Oh, sure. And they went and told Carrie on her. Carrie may have already known, like, thank goodness, goodbye, you're settled, whatever. (laughs) But they went and told Carrie, who was forced due to propriety, to come fetch her daughter from the ice cream store. Hmm. So she got a job as a waitress at the Old Chauffeur's Club, which seems way worse than working at an ice cream store to me. Serving drinks, being around smoking, rough-talking 
cursing guys? Yeah, at 13. That's no ice cream store. It was like a local meeting place for, you know, musicians and actors. She really did fit right in. Yes. They were her people. She would um, make people just crack up because she could do really good impersonations. Mm-hmm. And you know how funny that is when you're sitting around a table with your friends and somebody imitates one of your friends and yeah. everyone cracks up. She, Yeah, she was very good at that. She had started to model herself after some lady customers that came in. Um, she would try to change her voice and try to change her carriage and her accent. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Madonna's accent. Where the heck is that from? I know. <laughs> Where the heck is that from? Okay, well... In Madonna's defense, if you move around to different places, you tend to pick up things as you go. I have a little bit of Chicago in me, and I only lived there for five years. But you don't have, like, Kathleen Turner, same thing. Kathleen Turner's like, it's affected. Okay, enunciation (laughs) master. Now, how's this for growing up too fast? She'd been at her job about half a year. She's still 13 years old, and she's been having quite a few gentlemen callers. Inappropriate. I think. Did you let your daughter date at 13? No. No. It's a different time. It's a different place. But gentlemen callers at 13. Yeah, but she's, I mean, that's that's where she is. She's meeting these people. Yeah, yeah. And she's kind of a go-getter, and she's kind of, I don't want to say she's a hustler, but she's she's got her wits about her. She's learning her environment. She's... Survival mechanism. Exactly. So the men are going to come calling. And she had that attract, that charismatic quality. I mean, that, you can't, you're born with it. Yeah. She didn't develop that later on by imitating someone else. I mean, that's just a quality that she possessed. Well, that's why they so. would send her to trick the purveyors out of, you know, mm-hmm. apples or whatever. Right, exactly. They exactly. knew what her talent was. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that the older men were attracted to her. So all of a sudden, she gets married to Willie Wells. Who? Exactly. Who's that? She was married in a white dress in a church, and soon she was knitting baby clothes. Hmm. And she quit her job, and she started keeping house, or keeping bedroom, because they were upstairs in Mary and Arthur's house. I just looked this up, and in Kansas and Missouri, you can get married with parental consent at 15 still. Really? Mm -hmm. But 13 is still. (laughs) A couple of months later, they had a fight. Oh, did they have a fight. It it ended with Josephine holding a bloody, broken beer bottle, and Willie running off to get stitches over his eye, and never coming back. Never coming back. What was the fight over? Presumably, it was over her faking a pregnancy. Or... And his discovery that she was not indeed pregnant. Yeah. Or... Or Brother Richard said that after this fight, Josephine went to a back alley and got something done. And um, so that's a mystery, although the having something done would dovetail with her difficulty in getting pregnant the rest of her life. So so who knows about that? Either way, that is bye-bye to husband number one. Now, what Josephine had been doing since she was in school years ago, she'd, long, she'd stopped at this point, is spending her truancy hours at the Booker T. Washington Theater. She would watch the act. She would mimic them. She would practice them. She was drawn to this theater because it was where all the black singers and dancers and comedians and musicians were performing. And enterprising street performers who wanted to make a quick buck, would entertain the line waiting to get into the Booker T. Washington Theater. Mm-hmm. So smart. So smart. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where their crowd is. Yeah, they're going to see, be entertained. And so Josephine got quickly recruited to be a member of um, this little troupe of street performers. And then they got picked up by a vaudeville company. It's like, moving on up. So Josephine got to do this solo dance, this funny one. And she said, I felt like someone had given me a slug of gin. To have the, a slug of gin as a reference at the age of 13. 13. <laughs> well, she was working in a nightclub. Yeah. So the company was going to go on tour with this vaudeville company. And you know what her mother said to her? Well, you've chosen your life. Goodbye. Okay, that's it. Okay, I guess that's some cozy family feeling. Uh, The group was called the Dixie Steppers, and she did quite a bit for them in addition to performing whenever they gave her the opportunity, but she was a dresser um, for one of their singer stars who kind of mentored her. So on tour, like that Cameron Crowe movie, Almost Famous, this baby. I love that movie! Sorry. This baby is, for two years, hopping in and out of speakeasies around a lot of scary and, frankly, unsavory characters. 
Um, one of the guys really believed in voodoo and kept giving her hair-wrapped rusty nails, which is supposed to be warding against evil. Other people would give her rabbit's foot, um, blessed rabbit's foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she actually kind of carried that theme through her whole life. Mm-hmm. She always had some rabbit feet on her. And always claimed that some old black man had given him to her. And it's like, yeah, probably a guy in this show. But yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's pretty scary, especially the southern leg of the tour. Think about that. You know, in the late teens, it was pretty scary, I think. On the last day, the last day of the tour, one of the regular chorus girls got hurt. And they looked around for a fill-in. A fill-in in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was going to play a street. Honestly, she was. But the regular girl was a lot bigger, and the costume just looked like comedy, you know? <laughs> so here are all these hot mamas, hot mamas in a line, and the one on the end is like this little kid with baggy tights, mm-hmm. and her dress is dragging on the floor, and all she had to do was walk out on stage, literally. She walked out on stage, and people started to laugh. And so she's like, well, she sent up the chorus girl thing. She even added a little bump and grind, and here's this tiny little mm-hmm. girl bumping and grinding and... Um, Making faces. Yeah. Yeah. Clowning around. It kind of became her calling card. You know, the cross-eyed, knock-kneed, goofy end girl Mm -hmm. was her thing. She played this character through a couple more shows, and people tried to steal her from show to show, which was kind of cool. She was getting great reviews. Mm -hmm. The rest of the chorus line, not so pleased. No, because she was really stealing their thunder. But the chorus line, in one place, threw all of her stuff in the alley. That's not very nice. No, not really. You know what? I have to tell you, I was in Annie, Mm -hmm. and during that 66-show run, the children were so horrible to the little girl that played Annie. They would try to spill things on her dress. They would try to get the dog to like them better. Nobody was supposed to talk to the dog, so the the dog would come to the Annie Mm -hmm. on stage. They would try to um, crumple up her clothes or put something gross in her wig. I mean, it is not just chorus girls. Yeah. Wow. The theater is sometimes a very jealous place. Well, even though it's a team sport in some regards... (laughs) There's always got to be a superstar. So at 15, Josephine met and married another Willie, maybe, or Billy. Nobody can even get that name right. I know. Isn't that interesting? But his first name is not as important as his last name. Mm-hmm. His last name was Baker. Baker. That's where Josephine got the last name, Baker. He had a steady job as a Pullman porter. And he was older. He was 24. He was secure. He was not in show business. No. You'd think a man with a steady job and a secure pension and calmness who was not a performer would be a relief to her after so much chaos. But somehow she just felt tied down and she just couldn't stop being restless. And she had one name in New York City, one address, and a whole lot of guts. And she took off to New York to follow her dream. Really, exit husband number two. Pretty much. Stage right. Yeah. So let's take a little break. And when we come back, what is the result of that crazy flight to New York to follow her dream? We cannot play any of Josephine Baker's music right here for you because we are trying to be good. But you know who can? You. That's right. We have put a couple of collections that we think you'll really like on our website on the carousel from Amazon.com. When you click on the carousel and buy through our website, Amazon.com tosses us a little cash. So that helps us a lot. Also, you get some great music. Some of our favorites are there. So visit us at thehistorychicks.com, check out the carousel, and listen to the fabulous music of Josephine Baker. And we're back. We are. Josephine has set her sights on a play called Shuffle Along. It was a long-running musical, and it was the first all-black show to play on Broadway. And she wanted in. She was black. She was a performer. Secretly, while she was still in Philadelphia, she did audition. She gave them her correct age, which at the time was only 15. And... At that time, you needed to be 16 to perform on Broadway. But she had another problem that was something that would... I don't want to say haunt, but it's a reoccurring situation that occurred through her whole life from birth on. Her mother thought she was too light-skinned. In this situation, she was too dark-skinned to be in the chorus. You just can't win. She couldn't. She couldn't. 
So she didn't get it the first time, but she had her sights set on it so badly that she left Philadelphia and aimed for New York. She did get her second audition. She did lie about her age, and she did get cast and shuffle along. She was in one of the hottest properties around. It filled packed houses all over the country. She was making, by the time she was 17, $125 a week. That is $1,682 a week, <laughs> according to the calculator I used. But um, what a long way you've come. So she was still a ragamuffin on stage. That's her persona, dancing clown, basically. Um, but she was diva awesome off stage. She used her money wisely. Remember those ladies she used to look at that came in to be customers? She put on, I mean, make it till you make it, girl. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She had on the fanciest of dresses. She had the mannerisms. She made a point of swanning back home in her fancy clothes in a taxi, which caused enormous commotion in the neighborhood as people came running out of their houses to see what the heck this taxi. Mama just stared at her disapprovingly, and Arthur had moved from his bed to the couch where he didn't even get up. It was a very big letdown, I think. She expected some kind of good job, some kind of yeah. accolades from her family, and it was just like, hey. <laughs> like, literally nothing. Yeah. And I think it must have hurt her so bad. I mean, she didn't go back there for another, Mm-mm. like, 14 years. Yeah. But what at this point, what she's doing is she's touring around with Shuffle Along, and she also got into some other shows in New York, some shows in Harlem, which at the time was the hot spot for black performers. Life in Harlem for a performer like Josephine was a, was where she wanted to be. There was performers everywhere, musicians, actors, singers, dancers. There was a whole renaissance period where the entire area was focused on the arts. Well, it was very, very fashionable for what they called cafe society to trot on over to Harlem to see these performers. Now, we covered it a little bit in the Ella Fitzgerald podcast, mm-hmm. how White audiences would come to black theaters. Now, the opposite was not true. But it it was very fashionable. It was very, very trendy. An American socialite in France named Caroline Dudley loved art and theater, but always joked that she had zero talent. Nothing. Mm -hmm. But she did have a lot of money. And she had a lot of chutzpah. Yes. And she set herself up as a producer. Her father had brought her up with this kind of non-typical, open-minded attitude, I think. In fact, Booker T. Washington was a frequent dinner guest at their house. What a nice tie-in. How's that for full circle? Anyway, Africa and all things African were kind of cutting edge, kind of trendy right now. And so she thought, mm-hmm, I can bring this kind of show, like Shuffle Along. In fact, at first she thought, I'll just bring Shuffle Along. Right. You know, to France. It's going to be hit. See, the problem is, fashionable French people were pretty jaded by this time. Can you see them with their long, filterless cigarettes and their big yawn faces? Really. <laughs> Entertain me. And after the Folie Bergère, which nudity was commonplace, mm-hmm. how are you going to shock me, shock me? Yeah. Well, well, here's how. You've never seen the like of this situation. Yeah. All black show, black performers. And so she came back to assemble her cast and she showed up at the theater where Josephine was working to hire one of her co-workers as the lead female singer. She did not come to find Josephine, but when she encountered her by accident, she recognized her from the end girl chorus line. And she was so excited to meet her. It's almost like she did this double take and offered her a spot. Not the singer. Sorry. No. You can't have that. But you could be a dancer. Wouldn't that be awesome? Josephine met a fan. I know. (laughs) That's her first fan meeting. Well, that's cool. But also, that's a pretty big leap. I mean, it's a new country. She doesn't speak the language. Um, Whoever heard of this lady? Nobody. No, but she was dressed very well. It was the kind of person that Josephine would want to be. So why wouldn't she follow her to an exotic place like this? And her reluctance was interpreted as hardball. Mm Mm-hmm. So Caroline ended up doubling her salary, even though she would have gone for way less. Right. But whatever. <laughs> whatever. So, you know, so off they go. And this cast. On a ship across the Atlantic. However, they did take a little bit of America with them, because no matter how fabulous the performer and how much the producer has paid for their passage, all of the black people had to ride in steerage. Now, Josephine recalls seeing the Statue of Liberty recede into the distance 
and she said she didn't feel sad about it. Now that's coming from someone 50 years later after a lot of experiences. I can only imagine that's all you know is America. Right. And that's the symbol of America. It's going into the distance. And to say you felt nothing is kind of ridiculous. Now, probably the Josephine of 50 years hence Mm -hmm. remembered it with great disdain and I didn't feel a thing. True. Although, I wonder how, what she thought her career was going to go to. I mean, there really wasn't, at the time, any place else for her to go yeah. in, in New York. You know, and New York was it. I mean, going to Chicago is a step backwards. Maybe she didn't feel anything. What she did feel something for <laughs> is the husband of one of the for <laughs> co-performers. And she felt something for him all the way across the Atlantic. <laughs> okay. Poor, you know. You know, we're just like to throw in a little bit of gossip here, but Josephine, the opportunist. And when they emerged off the gangplank, wow, was it different from the segregated world they left behind? They walked to a cafe. Literally, this shocked them all. They walked to a cafe. They ordered coffee and croissants, and the dude just brought it. <laughs> now, to you and me, that'd be like K, okay. but to them, it was just like. He didn't even make a face. He had no face on him at all. Mm-hmm. They just came. They were customers like everybody else. And they sat where they wanted to, and no one gave them an eyeball, nope. and no one moved them. Nope. It was miraculous. And they kept wanting to do it again and again to different cafes. Was this a fluke or whatever? But finally, they had to be corralled. Come on. Hello. We've got a show to do. We have to In 10 days. Them. Yeah. Okay, so, but what the heck was this show? The director basically had to do shots and have a quiet heart attack. Tap dancing? Spirituals, this was not flying. Oh my god, we've got to redo this. There's ten days till this crap opens, and this is craptacular. So he he took off to nightclubs all over town to find this famous choreographer and threw cash at him. Like, dude, get up. Get up now and get in my car. And oh, did this guy have a surprise for Josephine? The show was now called the Le Revue Negre. N-E-G-R-E. And Josephine was now the star of a new number called Le Dance Sauvage. Sauvage Savage. Basically, a naked ballet dance with strategically placed feathers. Not all that strategic. Just on Mm. the bottom. Yeah. (laughs) So, wild jungle sexiness. Hmm. Now, Lenjin has it that she fought the semi-nudity, but there's quite a few people who said, no, she was up for anything. Although, she did have this dream of wearing beautiful gowns and making an entrance down a stairway and finally getting to sing, and no one would ever let her sing, because she really didn't sing that well. Um, But seriously, she had crossed the ocean for what she had kind of thought was going to be this opportunity, and now it's like, oh no, wear a pink feather and dance naked in front of French strangers now. So, she did, I mean, she did cry a little, but not because, like, I'm so ashamed of being naked. It was more like, seriously, yeah, I'm not going to achieve this dream right now, am I? Her voice later in life was better, but at the time, she wasn't singing the right songs for her. She couldn't project, but as a dancer and doing this particular dance, she was quite a sensation. Um, once the show finally opened, one viewer described her style and said, This is no woman, no dancer. It's something as exotic and elusive as music. The embodiment of all the sounds we know. It was a big, big hit. You could cause them to extinguish their Goldwaz cigarettes. They were looking. They were amazed. She had triumphed. The scruples vanished. Literally, no more scruples. <laughs> what do you uh, want me to show? What do you want me to do? And she kind of improvised her dances. I mean, they were mm-hmm. they were blocked out, but for the most part, you know, she could just flip into a Charleston at any moment. Yep. Chic Parisians were all about her. It happened fast. I mean, yeah. you know, you think of those montages in the movies where she arrives on the scene and, oh my goodness, already she's the talk of Paris. That's how it happened. Yeah, yeah. She went to parties. Designers pressed garments upon her, especially Poiret, who had this idea of freeing ladies from their corsetry and all the restrictive clothes. If you've seen, again, Downton Abbey, Sybil's little harem pant outfit. Uh-huh. I'm not entirely sure that is Poiret, but that's the feel of it. You've got loose harem pants. Shocking to the dad, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> now, can we get a picture of this hobnobbery? Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald. Jean Cocteau. Hemingway. If we did dudes, 
He'd be number one, Hemingway. I, oh, oh, we, we did. Oh, yes. Dorothy Parker was there. Gertrude Stein, Langston Hughes, who will appear many times in this epic. So here, here's another review of Josephine. Josephine Baker, our lives on the banks of the Seine were weary and depressing before you came along. You are the virgin forest and bring to us a savage rejuvenation. The virgin forest. That is Okay. <laughs> I think I guess that just means she's fresh and new. <laughs> hey, why not? Okay, that's what she's brought there for, right? <laughs> she started performing at the Moulin Rouge late late at night. We've all heard of the Moulin Rouge. Right. A little tour of Berlin added some interesting twists. Nudists, women dressing as men, Marlena Dietrich esque. Madonna. This is where Madonna, Madonna wasn't actually there. Don't. No, no, no. <laughs> but a lot. I think a lot of Madonna's career harkens back to Josephine Baker's. Yeah, there is a lot of parallels to their story. I will agree with Interesting. you. Interesting. But soon she was back in Paris at the other big house, the Folie Berger. Well, the Folie Berger was like a Vegas production, if you can imagine that. Showgirls, lavish costumes and sets, no expense spared. Irving Berlin was hired to write the music for this deal. There was elephants. I mean, it was like a big, think Cirque du Soleil, and now Josephine Baker is the star of this show. Incidentally, for Josephine's numbers, they only hired red-headed and blonde showgirls to accompany her so that she would stand out as so different. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Mae West only hiring um, really plump <laughs> supporting actresses because it would make it look better. Or bridesmaid dresses. It all works yeah, out. Yeah, the bridesmaid dresses. <laughs> The Folie Berger is where she got her over-the-top, never-forgotten routines. This is where she appears on stage wearing nothing but a banana skirt and pearls and does this crazy dance on a tree, this savage dance that sex and lust, and then all of a sudden she's Charlestoning. You know, it's just the whole range of emotions in this one dance. We did um, put a link to it for you to see, the... Uh, PG version where she's wearing a bathing suit top and not <laughs> topless, but it's you. All you have to do is watch this one one short YouTube video, and you can see what the attraction was to this woman. She did this other dance where she descended in a giant ball that would be lowered, and she would be charlestoning in this ball, and then the lid of the ball would close, and she'd be raised back up on the top of to the stage again. And it was like whoa. Very exciting. Were you alive when Madonna shocked the world with that like a virgin thing where she wore the wedding dress and rolled around uh, on the stage? MTV, yes. Uh, I remember watching it the first time it was on. I know, me too. <laughs> it's kind of that shock value. Like everyone's yeah. mouth just like dropped open. Yeah. E.E. E. Cummings wrote the review for Vanity Fair. <laughs> yes. And he said... She enters through a dense electric twilight, walking backwards on hands and feet, legs and arms stiff, down a huge jungle tree. A creature, neither human nor superhuman, but a mysterious, unkillable something, beyond time in the sense that emotion is beyond arithmetic. Okay. We don't understand that, but it was very... Emotion is beyond arithmetic. Yes. Okay. But E.E. E. Cummings wrote it. Yeah, there was a great contrast between this wild and then the refined. Like, it's bananas and pearls. Right. When she was off the stage, she was very well-dressed. Like back in New York when she was working on her offstage persona, she this is where it really came into being. She would be seen offstage, which would, of course, increase the theater goers because she's a big celebrity. Josephine was really unpredictable. She was really manic with social interaction and work, and then she would just shut herself away or, you know, snap and kind of take to her bed a little bit. And I'm just wondering if it was just, like, trying to figure out who she was or she didn't have any real friends, really. Yeah, or maybe Um, she got lost in this person that she was creating. She was the most photographed woman in the world. The famous name-dropped her relentlessly. Hemingway himself had bragged that he danced with her when she was in a fur coat and naked under her fur coat. Could be true. Either one of them could have made that up, is all I'm saying. Picasso, Fujita, Calder used her as a muse, as a model. Advertisers clamored to use her image. Pernod used her in many ads. There was a, a product called Baker Fix that was to straighten your hair, and that was her most lucrative advertising deal. That was like a 30-year contract. It was a black hair product that would relax 
your hair and then seal it in place. Right. At the time, that was the style that she had. It was kind of a helmet glued to her head. It almost looked like it was painted on. Um, so she hit the recording studio, even though her voice was pretty reedy and undeveloped, the name sold some copies. Mm-hmm. The men came a calling. If you thought she was in demand when she was 13, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. The Foley ladies were traditionally available for a high price. It was an unwritten rule. Josephine was not an exception. Kind of like the professional girlfriends in Sex mm-hmm. and the City. Une fille de joie. <laughs> and gifts. Here's some of the gifts that they gave her. Diamond rings as big as eggs. 150-year-old earrings that belong to a duchess. Flower baskets from Italy. Six Chinese chairs. Toys that run on electricity. Woo! Toys that run on electricity. Uh, Taxidermy. I don't know why. (laughs) Taxidermy. Bracelets with red stones for her arm and legs. Four fur coats. A pair of shoes dipped in gold. Perfume and a glass horse. And great big strawberries out of season. One of her lovers even gave her a convertible that was upholstered in snakeskin. Wow. So she had to hire a chauffeur because she didn't know how to drive. But though they kept her from being alone, at least physically, she was alone. She Who could she call her friend? It was pretty lonely at the top. And so she started collecting animals, regular old dogs, regular old cats. But she also had a baby tiger. That's my ambition, is to hold a baby tiger. Oh, Someday in my life, I would like to hold a baby tiger. Okay. A boa constrictor. Families of mice, those two don't seem to go together. Her dressing room was out of control. Everyone just pooped wherever they wanted. And she never picked anything up. Like, you'd come in and you'd see this $10,000 dress on the ground with dogs sleeping on it. And they're like, hello, what are you doing with this dress? She goes, they'll just send another pile of them tomorrow. Oh, my God. This person, she was an absolute superstar. So she had so many marriage proposals that somebody drafted her a form letter of rejection. But simultaneously, in the night... Her secretary's wife would be called in to hold her hand because she was afraid and she was sad. So, which is the real person? I think both of them are the real one. Mm-hmm. One is the um, outside voice and one is the inside voice. So it was with great relief and happiness that one night when she was at this saucy after-hours club full of escorts, let's call them hostesses and dance instructors, let's. she was introduced to one of her friend's cousins. Who introduced himself as Count Pepito de Abatino. He was a, an Italian count for about as much as he was not. <laughs> yeah, he said he was a bored diplomat, tired of the endless social whirl, but in fact he was a bricklayer from Sicily, who was very handsome and a good mimic. And a little embroidery never bothered Josephine. In fact, she said of her own life, I don't lie, I just improve. <laughs> so those, so yeah. they were kindred spirits here for sure, and they gravitated towards one another. Um, he would take on the role of manager and pseudo husband for the next ten years of her life. She did become more monogamous, but not before one of her foul protectors advanced enough money to buy her her own nightclub. Or what? Yeah, the count stepped back just a little to let that transaction happen, and then he was right back in the picture. So this was her element. She would be dressed to the nines, and she'd walk in, and she'd meet, and she'd greet, and she'd sit on your lap, and she'd listen to your jokes, and she'd dance the Charleston with you, and she would serve you decal orange or maybe chitlins, black-eyed peas, or foie gras. All you hipster fusionist <laughs> cuisine lovers. She was rooster combs and underdone fried eggs running all over the plate before that was cool. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> the Count, which um, Josephine's co-star is called the No Count. Yeah. <laughs> not only treated her like a lady, he pulled out chairs, he talked her up affectionately and proudly. He made sure other people respected her by his treatment of her. Mm-hmm. He helped her by getting her voice lessons, French lessons. They worked on couth and cutlery. Now, at the surface, it sounds like those guys that buy their girlfriends and nose job hmm i love you but i'd like you better if but in this case it was business packaging he was creating the brand of josephine baker polishing what she already had to be this gleaming i mean she was called the black pearl of paris i mean that's very descriptive of what he helped her accomplish 
this was helping her get her dream. She didn't resent this at all. She, quote, became the Countess de Abitino. This cracks me up. Why not? During the interview, she said, and I quote, Sure, he's a count. There ain't no fake about that title. I had it looked up and verified by a private detective in Rome before I signed on the dotted line. He's got a great big family there and lots of coats with arms and everything. Whatever. Oh, I don't think Josephine, okay. even 25 years later, would speak that way. No, no, no. But that was pre-complete polishing job. But, oh, how fickle is fate. Her new show at the Folie Berger failed to elicit the same prizes last time. Oh, yes, the boobies, the bananas. Uh, those famously jaded Parisians were going off that old shtick. They were going off of it. She starred in a movie in which she played Poppy Two, a jungle native, mostly naked, who dances the Charleston and comes to Paris for love. Oh, ha, ha. The stereotype machine. Yeah. Josephine was so bummed about this that she started showing her temper on set. She got a reputation for throwing things, slamming things, calling people names. She was kind of a diva. She was kind of trapped, I mean, though. Yeah. I mean, she signed up for a movie. That's very exciting. And mm-hmm. now there's this. Yeah. And when Hollywood came calling, at least the first time, she was so anti. She said, they'll probably just make me sing Mammy songs. <laughs> is what she said. Now, realistically, she'd probably be cast as a domestic servant mm-hmm. or as a prostitute. Right. So she probably did the right thing by not going there. But Josephine was also shocked one night in in her enclave, in her hidey hole from America and from racism. A Texas man stood up and yelled up at her at home and in woman belongs in the kitchen. And it upset her very badly, like more than she showed. She got so rattled, she went back behind the curtain and had to sit down a little bit. Well, that would rattle anyway. I mean, she's, yeah. that's horrible. It is very horrible, and she didn't expect it to come to her there, I think. Mm-hmm. She thought she was away from it. Right. Pepito, manager that he is, thought they better get out of France while they were still on top, kind of. Mm-hmm. Maybe absence would make the heart grow fonder. Right. And if you go on a world tour, you can create other fans in other countries and make you an even bigger superstar. So he started booking engagements for her all across the world. They would go to 25 countries in the next two years. There were such mixed results on this thing. There were immorality protests. In fact, the Austrian parliament actually debated in (laughs) session whether she was a threat to morality in the country. There were Nazi threats. Nazi threats. Nazi threats, yeah. Someone threw ammonia bombs at her. One stalker agreed to duel Pepito in a publicity stunt, and another stalker stabbed himself at her feet. Scandinavia loved her, and one member of the royal family loved her more than anybody else. Crown Prince Gustav. Legend has it that while they were in Sweden, he invited her back to the palace, led her through a secret door to a four-poster bed where she'd laid naked, and he covered her body in jewels does not sound comfortable. No, it doesn't, but hey, what if you're going to have a legend? <laughs> That's a pretty good one. It's in the realm of possibility, but nobody knows for sure. Nope. It's a good story, though. It is a good story. In Buenos Aires, it was all about race. Riots literally broke out in the audience. Firecrackers were thrown on stage as she was behind there cowering. Later, though, she, when she's recounting these stories, she has... The legend is that she calmed them all and entertained them and brought them all together in unity. But other accounts from people that were there in the band say that she sat behind the curtain, basically fearing that the firecrackers would set the curtain on fire. Which sounds more reasonable to me. Yeah, it sounds a little more realistic. She um, was very demoralized to realize that, okay, that racism that she fled, that she's terrified of, is not just in America. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And she has a little pocket of relief in Paris. She wrote a letter back home to the papers angrily saying she was going to give up dancing because it's an art if a white woman does it and a transgression if a black woman does it. This whole tour kind of reinforced her feelings. This was the seedling of an idea that she could make a difference, mm-hmm. or that she ought to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And that she was in a position to make a difference. Yeah. She thought she had the power to do that. So that just kind of took root a little. It took a while to flower, but that's when it all kind of started was during that first tour. More immediately, she said about this image makeover that she had tried out on tour. Mm-hmm. So gone was the ragamuffin. Gone was the clown. Her couturier-wearing offstage persona went on stage with her. 
And she was quoted in the paper as saying, the dance sauvage is finished. You have to grow and change all the time. When you no longer have anything new to do and say, you disappear. Which is actually a really good mission statement for her. So to go along with her new persona, she bought a 30-room mansion called Le Beauchene, and it looked like a fairy tale castle. There was a mirror-lined bathroom, so when you got out of the tub, you could reveal yourself to yourself in all your glory. Um, she made sure to install monkey cages. Okay, because everybody needs those. Well, yeah. she had the monkeys. Well, she had the monkeys. They need um, to be somewhere. And remember how grand ladies had the responsibility to the poor on their lands? Mm-hmm. That's, like, traditionally their duty. Josephine would secretly, on the DL, go to the local coal merchant and make her give her the list of who couldn't pay. And she would pay. That was kind of nice for her. And she made sure to hire local workers to do the remodeling on her house. Right. She made a point of it, like her neighbors. She became this beloved kind of local figure. Yeah, she was not only a celebrity in the country, but she was pretty popular in her own neighborhood, which says a lot, it says a lot about her, contrary to some of the other stories that are going to happen later. But Well, yeah, she says she'd be the godmother to all the children at the mm-hmm. orphanage. There's right. 50 kids there. Yeah. Um, she made a special playground for them on the estate. They could come anytime. If she was home, if she was not home, they could come. They could play with the animals. One of her favorite things was to let those monkeys out in the house. This sounds so mean. <laughs> Fifty kids running through the house chasing terrified monkeys all over. I know. And they would leave poo marks on her curtains. <laughs> the monkeys, not the kids. <laughs> yeah, I would hope. But poor monkeys. I feel sorry for the monkeys. But anyway, so people liked her in the village. Professionally, her dignity was on full blast. The eminently respectable Casino de Paris, which royalty could go to. This was no low-class establishment. They built an entire review around her called Paris qui remue, and she came down the stairs just like the pin and penny shows in the basement. She finally finally got to use her choreography. (laughs) Her voice was by now very dignified. She had been drilled in regal bearing. Like, there's no more of this when she bows. You like me. You really like me. Now it's like, hello, my people. Yeah. Hello, do I look marvelous? You know, that's how she would enter. And at this point, someone gave her a pet cheetah. Yeah, this cheetah thing. She'd walk it down the street. It was the name of the cheetah was Chiquita. And he was a boy, but it didn't matter. Whatever. Mm. Yeah. It was a diamond collar. And it was part of her act. Chiquita did become super famous and stop traffic wherever. I mean, that's a good prop. Oh, yeah. Although, when he got older, he would break out, and at one point, he crawled in someone's bedroom window. A lady. Can you imagine waking up to it? Well, and it's not like you can pretend it's not your cheetah. Yeah, so she had to send him to a zoo. But for now, he was a good prop. And there was a song written for her about this time called J'ai deux amours, which means, and it was talking about how she loved the United States and she loved France. And it became her trademark, and she really sang it at almost every performance she gave from now on. Yeah, that was her signature song. Two loves have I, my country and Paris. Yes. That's the closest impersonation. <laughs> and the reviews for this show, one of them, she is not just a dancer or just a singer with a beautiful voice. She belongs now to that great race of artists with overwhelming personalities that the public takes to their hearts. She had a series of hits. She started a movie called Zuzu. Now, this will sound familiar. Colonial girl, native girl, uh, moves to Paris. There's unrequited love. There's music hall numbers. And there's a sad ending. And there's boobies. Oh, yes. Like in the first 15 minutes, the natives are dancing. <laughs> of course they are. Yeah. <laughs> in a grass skirt. But it was a hit. The public yeah. loved it. Critics, who cares? Seriously, the critics didn't like it, but it doesn't matter. No. Pepito printed Zuzu stickers and had a team of dudes put those on every banana in Paris. And that guy was a smart guy. <laughs> Another movie called Princess Tam Tam. This might sound familiar. Colonial girl in Tunisia taken to Paris. <laughs> Eliza Doolittle into a society hit, performs in a musical, returns to simpler life in Tunisia. That's, I've never, ever heard anything like that before. I did not watch that one. I and, barely made it through the zoo. <laughs> and she had a great stage hit called Le Creole. Dazzling. She was better suited for the stage. The movies, I mean, it was limited. Her, obviously, her storylines were limited. So now I think it's time to take a little break. There is a gig in the United States in her future. Can she take over America the way she took over Paris? Stay tuned. 
And it's here where we have to leave you unexpectedly. This episode has gone longer than we meant it to go. There's a lot to cover. So we'll be back next time with part two of Josephine Baker. Thanks for listening. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. One day.